Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the neighborhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the neighborhood," she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trinsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus. Hmm? You're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love chapter two. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. This episode of the Bowery Boys is brought to you by Bulldozer, the Ballad of Robert Moses. In this new off-Broadway rock musical, New York's infamous power broker pushes his way through the city, pursuing free-flowing traffic no matter the cost. But when one community led by Jane Jacobs rises up against the master builder, can the voice of the people stop the bulldozer? Previews begin November 25th, 2017 at the Theater at St. Clement's with an all-star cast, including cabaret favorite Molly Pope as Jane Jacobs. TV star Wayne Wilcox as Nelson Rockefeller and American Idol finalist Constantine Maroulis as Robert Moses. As a special offer for our listeners, Bowery Boys fans can unlock half-price prime and premium seats with code BULLDOZERBOYS. For tickets, head to bulldozer.nyc. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states and Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. Episode 242 of The Bowery Boys, New York and the Dawn of Photography. Hey, it's The Bowery Boys. Hey. Support for The Bowery Boys is provided by our listeners. Join us for as little as a dollar a month by visiting patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Hi there, welcome to The Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And this is Tom Myers. And in today's show, we're going to be taking you back to a world that will seem very foreign. A world where there are not tens of billions of photographs taken on a daily basis Mm -mm. from digital screens. A world where actually the photograph is a rare and special and even a beautiful thing. So no selfie sticks <laughs> no. in the, in this show. None at all. No, because today we've decided to focus <clears throat> uh, rather on the development um, of photography in New York <laughs> in the mid-19th century. It's, you know, it is a story that doesn't get a whole lot of exposure. I swear we're not going to go crazy with the puns in this episode. We'll I'm, try not to. I promise. I'm sorry. I didn't mean to go negative. But this show will explore New York's role in the early history of photography and how New Yorkers made invaluable contributions to this early visual medium. 
and let's get this out of the way. The, you know, New York was not the birthplace of photography, and we'll get into that. Most of the early developments happened in France and England. However, in New York, photography became a business, and that's really what we're going to be talking about today. Our show will be centered on Broadway and the dozens of daguerreotype studios that lined the street. And in particular, we'll focus on perhaps the most famous New York photographer of his day, a man named Matthew Brady. Matthew Brady, however, most people are aware of his name because of his association with the Civil War and the invaluable role he played in documenting uh, the Civil War in photographs. However, less known is his role in the daguerreotype craze that rocked New York in the 1840s and 1850s. This photographic craze, this daguerreotype craze, we will be focusing mostly on the era before the Civil War, but this would have a profound impact not just on photography itself, but on the city. So join us as we take a snapshot of New York in the dawn of photography. So, Tom, the story of photography in the United States begins, I think, with a very unlikely personality. His name is Samuel Morse. Samuel Morse? The the telegraph man? Yes, he's best known as the telegraph guy and Morse code, which is the language that was used upon the telegraph. But back in 1838, when I'm starting this tale, he was best known as an acclaimed painter. He was almost 50 years old by this time, famed for his portraits of founding fathers and great American figures. So this was kind of later in his life, 1838, and he invented a system of telegraphic wires, which would be used to send signals hundreds of miles. This, of course, would become the famed telegraph. Uh Now, he traveled to Europe that winter to drum up interests in the telegraph and to find some, some financing. In 1838. In 1838. And it was there in Paris that he met an extraordinary man named Louis Degar, a man who would become synonymous with this new technological revolution, which would become the photograph. So Morse meets Degar, and Degar is making all of this progress, along with other inventors and his partner, yeah, oh, sure. in the development of what would become called the daguerreotype. Right. So, Or daguerreotype. Is there a correct pronunciation here? <laughs> there's, a, a, there's multiple ways to say it, and they said it in many different ways back then, in fact. People had been working on this idea of trapping an image permanently onto a surface for well over a decade. Scientists had been fascinated with the concept of the camera obscura, which was this ancient light projection device. So there was a French inventor named Nisipor Niepce, who was really considered the father of photography and managed to take the very first photographic images all the way back in 1825. A few years later, though, he entered a partnership with a scenic painter, the the previously mentioned Louis Degar. Scenic painter. So Degar was doing, what, theatrical sets? Oh, yeah. He was famed for these panoramas, which people would pay admission to, that were just extraordinary city scenes in miniature. But he would use shadow and light for effects within these panoramas. They sound extraordinary. Let's do a show on the panorama (laughs) craze, can we? So so they were partners. Neeps died in 1833, and Degar sort of took on the mantle and continued to develop the process here of what would then become called the daguerreotype. So then, to rewind to what I said earlier, when Morse met Degar, mm-hmm. it changed his life. Morse became incredibly fascinated with this brand new technology and then wrote a letter back to his brother, which then got, as they do, published in the New York Observer. Uh, the date was March 9th, 1839. So this was the first mention in the United States of this 
groundbreaking new process. Okay, so Morse is writing back to his brother, who leaks it to the press, yes. <laughs> uh, about this new process that he saw, I guess, called the daguerreotype. What exactly was a daguerreotype? Tom, are you asking me to explain the complex process of early photography in two or three minutes? I will be happy to do that. Thank you. So it starts mm -hmm. with a silver-coated copper plate. Okay, no film. Film doesn't come along for many, many decades. This copper plate, you buff it. You clean okay. it so thoroughly that it's pretty much like a mirror. You take that plate, you treat it with light-sensitive chemicals. And chemicals that would react and change the metal surface once exposed to sunlight. Okay, you got that? I think I've got that. Okay, so you take that plate, mm -hmm. that chemical plate, and you put it in a box, like a camera obscura. Think of it like a camera-like bottle, you know, that's trapping darkness except for a little tiny pinhole. I think I saw some of those the day of the eclipse. People oh, were yeah. making their own little light box. Yeah, it's the same concept. Now, when you're ready to expose that plate, you take the lens cap off. So that little hole, the light sort of comes, shines into it. And how long do you keep the cap off? Well, it, it, it can depend on what your subject is, what you're trying to capture. You can sit there anywhere from two minutes to 30 minutes. Two minutes to 30 minutes. Well, that certainly hinders what you can be taking a picture of. Oh, sure. And you can't move that box. Well, once you have the image that you want or you think you have captured, you remove the plate, you take it and you, you put it over a big vat of super healthy mercury and salts. The mercury then reveals that image, oh. and then you immediately bathe it in hyposulfate of soda, which then locks it in. Wow. So then this plate now has an image burned onto it. Mm -hmm. You just wash it, you dry it, and occasionally you'll treat it with gold, gilding, or even paint it. And then voila, there's your daguerreotype. And then you take your your daguerreotype hot off the press or mm -hmm. hot out of the mercury <laughs> and, and you encase it um, in glass and kind of seal it up so that it's protected um, from air. Right. Protected from the elements. And plus, it looks nice on your on your mantelpiece. Right. OK, so I think I've got this process down. It's 1838, 1839. 1839, yeah. And Morse is in Paris writing back to his brother in New York. He sees this process how long does it take before this technology comes to New York? Well, that's a pivotal year, 1839, because what happens is Degas publishes a manual, which then gets translated into several languages, and eventually that fall enters the United States. So budding inventors all over the country are really getting into the photographic act here. You know, in fact, down in Philadelphia... That fall in 1839, there is an amateur chemist named Robert Cornelius who was playing around with this uh, with this technology. And for one take in front of this camera, he jumped in front of it and posed there for several minutes to take, well, what we popularly know as the first self-portrait mm -hmm. or... Selfie. Or the first selfie. Meanwhile, up in New York... Morse, Samuel Morse, being, of course, a famous American by this time, and he has more resources than other people who are tinkering with this technology, he really begins spending a lot of time in advancing and improving uh, Degas' techniques. And he also has an association that's very critical to the spreading of the interest of photography to New Yorkers, because he was a professor at the University of the City of New York, or, of course, the institution that would become... NYU. NYU. We have an entire podcast on the history of NYU, if you want to jump back and listen to that after this show. Mm -hmm. But uh, hold on. Take us back to 1839. Yes. Uh, NYU is about a decade old. Yeah. Morse is teaching daguerreotyping. Yeah. Do you remember that first college building that they had? They were only in one building right. in the 1830s. That was that Gothic cathedral-like structure. On like the northeast corner, right? Yeah. Of Washington Square right. Park. Right. Exactly. The old university building. Today, it's the spot of the Silver Center of Arts and Sciences, which is appropriate name because given that this spot is important to the silver-plated roots of photography, and oh. so it's a major spot for you budding photographers. Photographers, you need to visit that corner. 
Morris would teach the very first wave of American photographers from here and using the daguerreotype process. And he would also experiment himself. And he would eventually build another studio with his brothers down on Nassau Street, just a block from Park Row. In fact, Samuel Morse is credited with taking the very first photographs in New York and of New York. Wow, those must be incredible images. Uh, Where can we see them? Well, sadly, most of them don't exist. Like, they were damaged in cleaning or they faded away. There are a couple, including one that was taken in the fall of 1839 or perhaps early the next year, of a a Unitarian church um, on Broadway across from Waverly Place. So that's considered the oldest existing photograph of New York City. And it was a Morse photograph, but unfortunately, most of them don't exist. And he even took portraits, but we don't, but we have none of those today. Can we just mention for one second here, too, that we are loosely using the terms photograph um, and image and daguerreotype when I, I think precisely these were what we're talking about here were daguerreotypes. They would not have called them photographs no. because that ex- that term did not exist and wouldn't for another, what, 15, right. 12 years or something. Like that. And, it, and as you'll see, they would even more popularly call them miniatures because daguerreotypes were not very large. So that was also another phrase that was used. So another reason that so many of these don't exist anymore is that they were all one-offs. You know, the very nature of the daguerreotype was that it was a piece of metal that, you know, the image was imprinted upon. There was no negative, as we think about today in the photographic process. So these were not able to be duplicated. They were all one-off images. The only way that you could reproduce a daguerreotype would be by taking another daguerreotype of that daguerreotype. So, <laughs> because Xeroxing wasn't invented either. So that's how you basically made your copies. So, so many of these have been lost because right. there weren't copies of them made. Now, back in the day, you needed direct sunlight, obviously, to take these pictures. There was no electricity and there was no artificial light. So naturally... Here at the old university building, Morse and the others who were interested in photography built a glass-topped photo studio on the roof here Uh on this corner. So just imagine being in this little room on top of one of the tallest buildings in New York City, waiting for a couple hours and just hoping that there were no clouds that day for just that, that, that one window of perfect sunlight. And many believe that America had better sunlight than Europe, by the way. So oh. you were waiting for this prime American sunlight to take images that for many people w- would have been considered magic because no one had seen these types of things before outside of paintings and illustrations. It must have been astonishing for the sitter, you know, because people were not in the habit of seeing their likeness represented and certainly not in that detail. Right. I mean, nobody Mm -hmm. had seen that before. Ever. Who was Morris working with at NYU? Well, there were several assistants and, of course, students in the studio that assisted. But his chief colleague at this time was a fellow professor named John Draper who worked with him and then separately in experimentations to improve this technology, most notably in taking what exists today as the very first clear photograph of a woman ever. And this is just one of my favorite stories, as you know, of New York City. The the woman's name was Dorothy Catherine Draper, and she was John's sister. And she worked as an assistant in the studio as well. But, you know, women weren't supposed to be working around dirty chemicals in a university where only young men went anyway. So she was there and she's the subject of this very first image. Which is also the subject of an episode of your spinoff show, The First. Yes, for more information on her and this fascinating story, go check out that podcast. It's episode two of the first. But from the roof, Draper also took the very first photographs of a heavenly body. Whose heavenly body? (laughs) The moon. Oh. (laughs) The moon. (laughs) Sorry. Interest in the daguerreotype, however, would be more down to earth 
Because with Draper and Morse taking these photographs, they also displayed them in lectures and in galleries. You know, you add all of that to all these new trained acolytes of Morse, all these students of this process. And then you add that to a rising wealthy class. And then what you get is something quite extraordinary in the 1840s. I know what you get, Greg. You get a daguerreotype craze. And we see that daguerreotype craze taking off in the 1840s and maturing in the 1850s into a real solid business. We see the first professional studio and gallery uh, opening up in 1840, headed by Alexander Wolcott and John Johnson. And they would be followed by several others pretty quickly. You know, within four years, by 1844, there were 16 galleries in the city. Um, But just consider this. By 1853, so nine years later, there were 86 of these daguerreotype studios, which were called galleries, in the city. And 37 of them were located on Broadway. The city also became a headquarter for North American Daguerrean supplies and manufacturing. So this is where new cameras were being built, innovations in shutters were taking place, new processes were being introduced. It was, you know, largely happening around New York because of the port, because of the artists who were here, and because of the wealthy class that was just crazy about getting their portrait taken. And most of these kind of like original innovators were students of Morrison Draper. But so many of these of daguerreotypists and their galleries were on Broadway in particular. Now, why was that? Well, it was the city's most fashionable street uh, in the 1850s. It's, you know, where you went to stroll in the late afternoon or after dinner. You went, you know, you wore your finest. You went to be seen. These daguerreotypists uh, who ran these galleries, they worked very hard to catch the attention of these strollers who were out, you know, dressed in their finery. They were already dressed up, so they could lure them in to get their portrait taken if they were out and about. And they tended to cluster together because of the nature of competition around City Hall, north of City Hall. If you take, you know... One example, on March 19th, 1853, two daguerreotype galleries opened on the same day at 359 and 381 Broadway, which was around Broadway and Franklin Street, you know, Uh about five or six blocks north of City Hall. The only restriction for these daguerreotypists is that it had to be during the day because they needed that sunlight, of course, to capture these images. That's right. And it was one reason that they clustered together. The the competition was so cutthroat because people couldn't even make appointments because you didn't know what the weather was going to be. So really, you know, you needed to take advantage of full sunlight or just like a very bright day. Uh, in order to have the, the the fastest exposure time as possible. But it wasn't like you could pre-book your appointment for the next day. You had no idea what you know the weather was going to be. So, Tom, take us into one of these galleries. We are young gentlemen in mm-hmm. New York in 1840s. We've got loads of cash in our pockets. We want to do something to take back to our moms. We're dressed up in our finery, and it's a sunny day. Mm-hmm. So, we're, yeah. yeah, we're out strolling Broadway. Uh, up to no good. <laughs> so take us into a, a to a gallery here, into a daguerreotypist. What would the experience be like? Well, first we would probably uh, notice at street level that there were daguerreotypes on display, right, down on the sidewalk to kind of catch our eye. Remember, we haven't seen such, for lack of a better word, photographic representations of people before. Mm-hmm. So we're stopped in our tracks on Broadway there, and we're looking at these images probably of some very famous people mm-hmm. as well, perhaps some uh, past presidents uh, right there in front of us. So we head in and we walk up the stairs. Now, this is probably a four or five floor building. And we're heading up a couple flights of stairs to the gallery. The gallery and reception floor uh, is where we check in and we find out how many people are scheduled to have their sitting before us. We're, we're told that we're going to have to probably wait about two hours. So we say, oh, what are we going to do for two hours? Well, fortunately, we turn around and there is a sumptuously decorated room, thick carpets, plush furniture, richly appointed, upholstered furniture, 
frescoed ceiling, Greg, satin, gold-papered walls, wow. chandeliers, light refreshments being served, and hanging on the walls everywhere, hundreds of daguerreotypes, images of people. So we're going to just pass this couple of hours hobnobbing with others who are waiting and maybe getting some ideas by looking at how others have posed in their daguerreotypes. Enjoying some light refreshment as we're gazing upon these photographic images for possibly the very first time in our lives. We can't believe what we're seeing. It's like we're, we're seeing people, but they're printed onto a, a, a hard surface. And gaily colored frames, and sometimes the photos themselves would be painted. Right. Some are tinted to look more realistic, although sometimes they take it a little bit over the top. You know, they they even can rough it up a little bit, piercing through the surface to make, uh, say, jewelry sparkle. Special effects. And then, no, Greg, you know what just happened? The sun went behind a cloud. Everybody sort of lets out an ugh as we have to sit and wait and wait and wait. Because somebody is off in the studio sitting there waiting for the sun to come back out. But when it does, they get back to their photo business. And finally, it's our turn to head into the studio. Now, depending on the daguerreotypist uh, in the gallery that we've wandered into... The studio could be on that same floor, or very likely, it could be up several more flights of stairs to the very top floor because they've had to cut skylights into the ceilings uh, to bring in as much light as possible. There's probably a northern-facing studio and a southern-facing studio so that you can operate as long in the day as possible. So when we're finally getting our image taken and we look our Sunday best, what is greeting us? Uh, How are we being posed? How are we preparing ourselves for this exciting moment? Well, the daguerreotypist, whose name we've seen hung out on a shingle out front, is the artist here at work. He is probably posing us in a certain fashion. He's also often not the person operating the actual camera. That's a camera operator. But here we are in the operating room, sitting down, taking our place, and what he's explaining to us is that the exposure, based upon the amount of light coming in through the skylight, is going to take between probably 20 to 40 seconds, a time during which we really cannot move. You can't even blink. Can't blink, can't change the smile or grimace on our face. How in the world are we going to hold still, we think? And then he explains that there are a couple little devices that they can use. There's a table that we can lean against that won't budge. There's even a contraption that looks kind of like a claw or a vice that will hold on to the back of our heads, which will be hidden from the camera's view, but which can hold our head in place. Oh my gosh, Like almost like something from the dentist office, perhaps. <laughs> right, although it looks scary, this head harness um, <laughs> really permitted us to kind of lean back into it. It, it didn't necessarily... It wasn't like squeezing your your skull. Mm-hmm. It was just offering a little bit of extra support. And you'll notice when you look at daguerreotypes with several family members, for example, that often they're kind of touching each other or leaning into each other or they have some point of contact that helps them to hold that pose uh, and give each other support for as long as necessary. So you've held that pose. The camera operator opens the lens... And then you're just sort of standing there for a length of time, motionless, no one's making a sound, until the exposure is complete. I'll read an account of this uh, that was in the fine book, The Daguerreotype in America by Beaumont Newhall. There would be, of course, a slanting skylight, preferably dirtied over to diffuse the light. There would be a number of iron headrests, either the the plain cast iron model or the newly introduced Jenny Lind model with ornate base and fluted column. There would be a simple background of dark Roman ochre, moleskin color, or bluish gray. There would be a movable reflector or screen to bounce light into the shadow side of the face. Except for the camera on its tripod, there would be nothing else in the operating room. The preparation of the plates, their polishing and sensitizing before exposure, their development by hot mercury, and the final fixing, gilding, and coloring would be taken care of in the mechanical department on the fourth floor. 
it's interesting that there's a mechanical department here mm-hmm. that is, you know, nowhere near this space, of course, because you don't want those smells of chemicals to deter potential customers. But the sort of darker side to this is that those who were employed in the more dangerous chemical side of this were often boys, teenage boys, um, who were paid very little money to expose themselves to all these hazardous materials. Yes, the the lowest rung on the ladder here, for which they were paid about a dollar a week, were the boys off in the mercury lab. So who were some of the big names that I might see walking up and down Broadway, some of the big purveyors of the daguerreotype? Well, an early prominent photographer was Jeremiah Gurney, who had been a jeweler living in Saratoga when he swapped a watch for a camera in 1838 and opened his first gallery in New York in 1840 at 189 Broadway. A couple years later, a pair of brothers, Charles and Henry Mead, ran their own studio with their sister Marianne, uh, first up in Albany, but then they moved to Williamsburg, Brooklyn, and finally to 233 Broadway. And they boasted that they had more than a thousand daguerreotypes in their gallery. So imagine how long you could stroll around waiting (laughs) for your time, you know, in the sun at the Meads Gallery. They also had a special bond with Degar. Uh, They had visited him in France and even taken Degar's portraits while they were there. But Greg, probably the best known of the early daguerreotypists, was a man whose name we haven't even mentioned yet, another protege of Samuel Morse, who opened his first studio at 205 Broadway in 1844. His name was Matthew Brady. And we'll get to Brady's story after the commercial break. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions. Chapter 1. Wayfair welcomes you to the Waberhood. Our hero, Titus Burgess, ambled down the stylish street of an enchanting utopia. A woman waved from a chic lounger. Welcome to the Waberhood, she said, where Wayfair helps everyone create a home they love. Titus stared in awe. Bohemian Boulevard, Trendsetter Terrace, Mid-Century Circle. Titus, Hmm? you're reading the Wayfair catalog. Oh, you'll love Chapter 2. Wayfair's fast and free shipping saves a potluck. Wayfair, every style, every home. Now, for the second half of this show, we're going to focus on this specific daguerreotypist, one Mr. Matthew Brady, a man I think that you could say, because, of course, this industry was focused on Broadway, kind of helped make Broadway one of the most famous streets in America well before there was ever such a thing as a Broadway musical. Why, Greg, what an intriguing declaration. (laughs) I've never, so? thought of, yeah, I've never thought of it that way, but it's true. Well, let's begin with his story, and it will, it will become very clear. Okay. Mr. Brady, Matthew Brady, that's Matthew with just one T, he was born somewhere between 1822 and 1823 in a town in a very rural area just west of Lake George, New York. Now, when he was a teenager, or perhaps 20 years old or so, since we don't know his specific birth date, uh, he moved to New York and came into the immediate attentions of two major New York figures. The first one was A.T. Stewart. Oh, the department store icon. The, yes, the, the retail impresario, famous for his lavish department stores. His Iron Palace at Astor Place. And his Marble Palace here at Broadway and Chambers, which preceded the Iron Palace and would come to define retail on Broadway in New York. Brady, when he was young, his first job was as a clerk in one of Stewart's mini stores. Okay, A.T. Stewart is one of the figures. Who is the other major New York figure? Well, we've already met him in this show, Samuel Morse. 
Brady met him through associations of portrait painting, and Morse took an interest in Brady and placed him in one of his photography classes. But it was Morse who taught Brady photography. Yes, I mean, isn't that incredible? These two iconic names here at the beginning of Matthew's career. Well, with a little ingenuity, Brady was able to combine his retail experience his, at Stewart's with his fascination with the daguerreotype. In 1844, at the corner of Broadway and Fulton, he opened a little shop to sell leather cases or display cases for daguerreotypes. Oh, so he got into the business not as a daguerreotypist, but actually by selling them their bejeweled frames. Yeah, the little frames that would hold the daguerreotypes and protect them uh, from the elements. It's impossible to understate how successful you would have been if you just opened any industry associated with the daguerreotype in the early 1840s. He was so successful that he just dove into the daguerreotype business himself with a second shop at 205 Broadway. That was the New York Daguerrean Miniature Gallery, is what he called it. Interestingly, and I think most fortuitously, it was next door to the newly opened Barnum's American Museum. From an advertisement of this very first store, quote, First premium New York Daguerrean miniature gallery, where may be had miniatures which for beauty of coloring, tone, and effect cannot be surpassed. By a new process, the dim and shadowy appearance of the pictures formerly so much complained of is entirely obviated. And Mr. Brady respectively invites the criticism of a just and intelligent public. Wow, that is some dense syntax. <laughs> but it shows a little bit of his bravado, even at this time. And his gallery, so close to Barnum's, got a lot of the spillover. You know, that was probably the most popular place in New York you know, when Barnum first opened his American Museum. It was a prime location, too, very close to City Hall. And thus, it's the location itself, which was one of the many reasons that he became so immediately successful. Another reason for his fabulous success was that he really was quite good at taking these daguerreotypes. He would scoop up awards all over the place from various industrial fairs that were all the rage of the day. There was one at Niblo's Garden in oh. 1846 where he won some prizes. He would later take a tour of Europe and win other awards, uh, most notably at London's Crystal Palace Exposition. And he won some as well at New York's Crystal Palace yeah, mm -hmm. Exposition. So these must have been great award-winning daguerreotypes. Um, what was it about a Matthew Brady daguerreotype? Was it the way that he was positioning his subjects? Well, what, what was it? Well, it's, it's not just the quality, but it was really the way he marketed these daguerreotypes. One key to winning these prizes was winning the attentions of famous people to photograph so that it was a mixture of oh. just the quality, but also the quality of subjects. Right, because he was photographing famous people in society, presidents, mm -hmm. generals. I mean, yeah, he had a very lofty vision of capturing famous people for posterity. It wasn't merely to get people's attention, but more that he had a sort of a, a grander purpose. In fact, he wished, quote, to form a gallery which shall eventually contain lifelike portraits of every distinguished American now living. I think it's so interesting that these places were called galleries. Mm -hmm. I mean, we would call them <laughs> photo studios, um, but they were really combining like a museum or a gallery with the studio, you know, bringing yeah. people in to see those likenesses, which itself was so shocking and groundbreaking to them, and see people who they had never actually seen before in real life, but they had heard of, and now mm -hmm. they could see a likeness of a past president. And while they were there, they could also have their daguerreotype taken. And this, to me, is the final element of what made Matthew Brady kind of the the most famous individual to take these pictures because the, because it was a gallery of craft 
you know, it wasn't like an art gallery today where we focus on the individual artists who who created a piece of work. People would come into these galleries and just assume that he had taken all of them. But in fact, some of them would be his and some of them would be a famous people who sat in the very chair a couple floors above them. But he also employed other people to take these daguerreotypes, and then he bought other daguerreotypes that were taken in other places, but they were all displayed here in this gallery. So it gave this impression that not only was Brady this like unique creator of these things, but in a way he was like the grand American curator of the daguerreotype. So wait a second. He was displaying daguerreotypes taken in other galleries? By other daguerreotypists? <laughs> yes. I mean, I get the part that he's displaying things that were, you know, taken by his employees right, and he's yeah. just using his own name to sell them, but by his competitors as well. Oh, yeah. I mean, he he believed that he was really celebrating the daguerreotype itself. Ah. But on top of this kind of blurring of the lines here at the at the gallery of like who took what or whatever... You know, later in life, Brady actually, he had a bit of a spotty memory. And so thus, he sometimes didn't even remember certain ones that he took. So there are perhaps hundreds of daguerreotypes out there today that are labeled Matthew Brady daguerreotypes. Mm-hmm. Uh, that, but that even back then, we're not really quite clear if like what his direct involvement with those images are. But, you know, with this focus on photographing famous people... The the most famous people in America weren't actually in New York in the 1840s. They were down in Washington. So in 1848, he went to Washington, D.C. to begin photographing politicians and wives. And eventually he opened a branch of Brady's Daguerrean Gallery down in D.C. A satellite gallery. Now, in the 1850s, as you had mentioned, daguerreotype studios were a common sight in New York. It's incredible that this technology hadn't existed a decade before, but by the 1850s, it was just commonplace. It's almost like the internet was a few years ago, where it began by being a novel thing to then becoming a complete regular way of life. It had been assimilated into the New Yorker's way of life. Brady, to kind of keep with the fashionable society that was moving north up the island of Manhattan kept moving his studio further and further north. So he's moving with the city farther uptown. Was Brady living in his gallery, like in the studio someplace? Uh, You would think that would be a convenient thing to do, but no, he and his wife Julia actually lived out in Staten Island. And that commute was longer and longer as he moved his studios farther north. In 1853, he opened a three-floor space at 359 Broadway What's incredible is that building is still there. And that's right at Franklin Street. Greg, that was one of the two that opened on the same day in 1853 that I mentioned. Oh, interesting. At the time, it was one of the most lavishly appointed studios in the city. He had 25 people employed there, including a man who will be very instrumental to the history of photography a little bit later, a Scottish immigrant named Alexander Gardner who in 1858 would leave New York and would operate Brady's Washington, D.C. gallery Uh down there. Brady briefly operated another studio at Broadway and Bleecker. It was over a barbershop. This was like kind of his lesser gallery. However, it's actually one of his most famous because of a very specific photograph. On February 27th, 1860... An Illinois politician just stopped on by. He was in town to give a speech that night down at Cooper Union. Of course, I'm talking about Abraham Lincoln. This one series of photos that was taken here on this snowy afternoon on a February 27th would have a profound impact on the campaign of Abraham Lincoln, who would, of course, then eventually get elected president. And Brady himself would often claim credit for part of that. Because this image would be used far and wide, even by Lincoln in his in his campaign. Right. Although it's interesting that it wasn't actually the image that was taken, but illustrations of the image, because photographs weren't being published in newspapers yet. Right. So they would have to make a lithograph or an engraving of the daguerreotype. <laughs> yes. 
Well, in the fall of 1860, just a few months after Lincoln left his little bleaker studio, Brady opened his grandest gallery of all at Broadway and 10th Street, across from fashionable Grace Church, and just steps from Union Square. So essentially at the heart of it all in Civil War era New York City. And this was big news in the city. The opening got a huge write-up in the New York Times, of which I shall read a small excerpt. Oh, please do. Quote, The new Brady Gallery has been baptized the National Portrait Gallery. It deserves the name and more. It is cosmopolitan as well as national. The ample stairway of rich carved wood introduces you to a very Valhalla of celebrities ranging over two continents and through all ranks of human activity. In this deep-tinted, luxurious room are gathered the senators and the sentimentalists, the bankers and the poets, the lawyers and the divines of the state and of the nation, kept all in order and refined by the smiling queenliness of all manner of lovely or celebrated women." I mean, wouldn't you want to go there, Greg? <laughs> I mean, to call it the National Portrait Gallery is a pretty august claim. And this was Brady who was making the claim. Brady was calling it the National Portrait Gallery. And this was, we should know, before the National Portrait Gallery existed, existed. in mm-hmm. D.C. So that was 1860, and that all sounds quite grand, and like things are going swimmingly for Brady. However, there was a darkening cloud over the daguerreotype scene. It, it, the end of the daguerreotype era was already upon us here in 1860. And that was due really to two big things. The first thing is just pricing and price wars that had already broken out. You know, while Brady was charging initially $2 for a portrait, competitors in the 1850s had slashed their prices down to only 50 cents. A a great example of this was a company called Reeson Company down at 289 Broadway who introduced mass production and assembly line techniques that allowed them to to crank out daguerreotypes really quickly and as cheaply as possible. Uh, Mr. Reese claimed to be able to produce a thousand portraits a day. You would enter into his his gallery and literally take a ticket, hand it to a guy who would snap your photo and then push the plate into a slot in a wall, and then it would pop out the other side already developed and cased and ready to go. Those sorts of innovations pushed prices down. Even Brady had to slash his prices down to a dollar. So it's becoming less lucrative mm-hmm. to, to keep producing these. So what was the other major force that changed the industry here. The other thing that really did in daguerreotypists was just advances in technology, especially the introduction of the process called the wet collodion process, which was invented in England by a man named Frederick Scott Archer in 1851. The wet collodion. Yes, not the Nickelodeon, but the wet collodion process, which I will not get too technical about. Thank you. (laughs) But let's just say that, roughly speaking, that this process and others related to it, like the ambrotype, would lead to the introduction of the glass negative and then to the printing of those negatives onto photosensitive paper, which would also be developed in the 1850s. This technology would take a number of years to catch on, but by the early 1860s, printing photographs, and these were the first things to actually be referred to as photographs. Printing these photographs would be cheaper than producing daguerreotypes. Brady and his competitors, you know, had to act quickly to adopt the new technology to get the training, to get the new materials. So really by 1860, the daguerreotype craze is over, and by the early 1860s, really people aren't making daguerreotypes anymore. They've switched on to new technologies. But if we're in the early 1860s, the United States has something more concerning on its hands here, obviously, the Civil War. Yes, and what's interesting is that, you know, many of our listeners will already know Brady's name as a Civil War photographer. Indeed, he's all over the Ken Burns documentary on the Civil War, for instance. That's correct, from 1990. He got first involved in the Civil War by producing 
carte de visite, the, the small little visiting cards which sold like hotcakes uh, and were a craze on, um, unto themselves in the 1850s. So Brady started marketing carte de visite to soldiers who were heading off to the war, playing off of, you know, the fear that perhaps these soldiers wouldn't be coming back. So get, you know, these small portraits, these miniatures made for all of your loved ones before you head off. He's definitely providing a service for these men who are going off to war, although he's profiting off of this. Right. Although he would then become much more involved in the war and interested in photographing the actual battle sites, uh, for which he obtained permission. He, he, you know, used all of his connections because he knew all of these people from taking their portraits. So eventually even asked President Lincoln and was granted permission by the president to travel to the battle sites um, as early as 1861 and start photographing them, though, after the battles had taken place. It was an enormous undertaking, obviously, given the, you know, the photo materials, the glass plates of uh, the developing lab, uh, just the infrastructure of taking these f- these shots, f- photographs by this point. Th- it was just very, very difficult to transport the labs and the equipment to these battle sites. But off he went that, that first summer in 1861 and even photographed uh, the first Battle of Bull Run. Brady went to the Battle of Bull Run and took photographs of it? Well, d- that one, yes. But in most cases, no. He often stayed back uh, in his Washington, D.C. studio or even back in his New York studio. He directed the efforts of his photographers who he would send off into the field, including Alexander Gardner, who you mentioned before, mm-hmm. a man named George Bernard, Timothy O'Sullivan, and more than 20 other photographers who worked for him. And these men produced thousands of images taken often uh, right after battles had taken place. He used these photos then to stage a show in October of 1862 in his New York gallery of photographs of fallen soldiers uh, from the Battle of Antietam, which was called the Dead of Antietam. Uh, It was a highly unusual show because it showed really graphic images for the first time of this war and of of the war dead. And the New York Times reviewed this show at his gallery, stating, Once more, let us repeat it, Mr. Brady is rendering us all a real service in diverse ways by this work of his, undertaken so courageously and carried forward so resolutely. It is no holiday business, this taking of likenesses of grim-visaged war, and it is no mere gratification of idle curiosity which its results may afford us. We wish the artist all possible success in his task and commend his efforts anew to the admiration and the appreciation of the American public. So the Times is commenting here um, on the highly unusual nature of this work and really the birth in many ways of photojournalism because he, he was taking an unflinching and realistic depiction of real-life events. But meanwhile, far, far away from Antietam and from the battlefield back in New York, we had Tom Thumb getting married uh, to young Lavinia Stratton, which we talked about in our Barnum show. They got married at Grace Church on February 10th, 1863, and the event was recreated in Brady's studio across the street from Grace Church where the photographer restaged the marriage and then mass-produced carte de visites. Uh, So anybody visiting, people going to Barnum's American Museum could pick up a carte de visite of Tom Thumb and Lavinia's uh, marriage to take back home. So essentially the prototype of a postcard, really. Yeah, even a little smaller. Mm -hmm. So after the war, what happens to Brady? Is Is he still thriving here in this neighborhood? It's kind of a sad story, actually, because we see what Brady did, um, regardless of whether or not he, you know, actually took his own photographs. We see what he did as a service to America and to our sense of history and capturing images of this terrible national event. However, Brady spent his fortune on these Civil War photographs. He thought that the U.S. government, you know, would 
would purchase them and cover his expenses after the war was over, only to find out that there really wasn't any interest in them at all because the country was traumatized. Once the war was over, they didn't, you know, the country did not really want to dwell anymore in the images of how they were just recently ripped apart. They wanted to focus on reconstruction and healing, and it, that wasn't going to come about by looking at a bunch of horrible graphic photographs. And the U.S. government wasn't willing to pay uh, for these photographs either. So Brady went into debt. Uh, he declared bankruptcy. He had to sell off his New York studio. Finally, in 1875, Congress would award him about $25,000, which was only about a quarter of his investment in taking these photographs in the first place. And even though his studio would remain active until 1883, it really was a, you know just a shadow of his former self because he was so identified at that time with this unpopular war. Brady suffered through a streetcar accident and died on January 15th, 1896. His... Obituary in the Times, published January 19th, 1896, uh, misspells his first name, Matthew with two T's, and opens with the line, Matthew B. Brady, the famous war photographer, died at the Presbyterian Hospital Wednesday night, alone and unnoticed. But what a tragedy that this man who was actually famous for capturing the images of America's most famous people and would, of course, become deeply associated with the history of early photography that he would die well out of camera's view all alone. However, his influence would still be felt in the city and celebrated by other photographers who would come along and take the art form even further, uh, including people like Jacob Reese, one of the first to really take advantage of the development of flash powder in 1887, which meant that he could finally photograph, you know, dark interiors and alleyways of tenements and slums. Another photographer worth mentioning briefly here was Alice Austin, who was born in 1866 and learned photography and processing as a young girl uh, when she was just 10 years old. In her career, Alice would capture more than 8,000 images of the daily lives of New Yorkers at really every level of society. And importantly, she was one of the nation's earliest prominent female photographers. And like Matthew Brady, lived in Staten Island. Today, her former home is a museum, the Alice Austin House Museum. And it's a great place. It features exhibitions of her work and of other photographers, holds fun events, makes a great day trip on Staten Island. That's not the only place you can go in New York City to celebrate the history of photography. Of course, the Met and the Museum of Modern Art both have incredible collections of early photographs. And then, of course, as well, the International Center of Photography, the ICP, uh, was founded in 1974, and it has presented since then more than 700 exhibitions of more than 3,000 photographers. And they're dedicated to not just showing uh, photographs, but also to training and educating students and the next generation of photographers and image makers. And they opened up a brand new ICP museum just last year in 2016 at 250 Bowery, which is between Prince and Houston. But Greg, we cannot leave a, a discussion about photography and New York without mentioning one more New York native. Now, not a New York City native, but a young George Eastman would be born in 1854 in a small town called Waterville. And when he was 30 years old, he would patent film that was on a roll and flexible. And soon he was mass producing cameras as well. Cameras that would take millions and millions of pictures of New York City. <laughs> That's right. He would also develop the trade name Kodak based upon the click-click sound of a camera shutter, Kodak. We will have a lot of photographs and daguerreotypes on our blog, BoweryBoysHistory.com. We would like to say thank you to our Patreon supporters, who, with their small monthly donations, 
are instrumental in helping us create more and more content. Uh, We're now on a weekly schedule and we're able to do a lot more with the show and a lot more interesting things because of you guys. So thank you. And if if you'd like to join them, please go to patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Once you're a member, you'll also have access to our private patron-only feed of extra bonus shows that we make for the patrons. So join us at patreon.com slash Bowery Boys. Now we're about to do something that we've never done before. We're about to announce the subject of our next show. And there's a good what? reason. There's a good reason for this. It will all be made clear next week. Uh, next week, the show is on New York and Neon, and a history of classic signs and signage in the city. So we would like to know if some of you out there have a favorite classic neon sign in New York City, because there's still hundreds around the city. But if you have, if you have one that you'd like to briefly mention and, and explain why you love it, we would like you to call us on our new toll-free phone number and leave a short message. And a couple of those messages will be used on next week's show. That's right. We have a toll-free number. It's 1-833-BOWERY-1. That's 1-833-B-O-W-E-R-Y-1. Leave a message telling us about your favorite neon sign or neon experience in New York past or present. So thank you for joining us on this show on the history of early photography in New York City. Have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Walmart Plus members save on meeting up with friends. Save on having them over for dinner with free delivery with no hidden fees or markups. That's groceries plus napkins plus that vegetable chopper to make things a bit easier. Plus, members save on gas to go meet them in their neck of the woods. Plus, when you're ready for the ultimate sign of friendship, start a show together with your included Paramount Plus subscription. Walmart Plus members save on this plus so much more. Start a 30-day free trial at walmartplus.com. Paramount Plus, a central plan only. Separate registration required. See Walmart Plus terms and conditions.